So we're going to read the whole of chapter 2 of 1 Timothy. I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Saviour, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed to at the proper time. And for this purpose, I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, and a true and faithful teacher of the Gentiles. Therefore, I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands, without anger or disputing. I also want the women to dress modestly, with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds, appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you speak. We thank you that you have spoken to us in the scriptures and continue to speak to us through them. And we pray that you will speak to us tonight. Open our ears and our hearts, we pray. And give me grace to speak truthfully only what is in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, those last four verses of 1 Timothy are probably if not the most, amongst the top three most culturally uncomfortable uh, passages in the whole of the New Testament. Uh, They have caused a huge amount of uh, scholarly literature to be written and a great deal of dispute in churches. Um, And so it may either come as a relief or a great disappointment to you to know that I'm not going to preach on them tonight. Um, And I I want to explain why. I think that lots of churches don't preach through 1 Timothy, despite the fact that it's absolute dynamite because of these verses uh, and because they're pretty hot to handle, but also quite complicated to handle. And to do a proper job with them takes a serious amount of time. Um, And I don't think I can do that fairly in the space that we have tonight, or at least in the space that your patience will allow me uh, tonight. So here's what I want to suggest. At some point in sort of early to mid-June, on a Sunday afternoon before the evening service, as we come to the end of our series in 1 Timothy, what I'd like to offer is an hour or so in the church lounge where we can really dig into the detail of verses 11 to 15 and really see together what they mean for us as individuals and for us as a church. So it's not that I want to duck it, it's just that I want to do it properly. So um, we'll get a date to you. I I have a date in mind, but I just want to confirm it with a couple of people before publishing it. So um, 
as we come to the end of our series in 1 Timothy, and as we've got a sense uh, together of the whole book and of what God is saying through the whole book, I, I think that will also help us in making sense of what God is saying to us through uh, the last verses of 1 Timothy 2. The other reason I don't want to preach on those verses tonight is because actually what's in the previous 10 verses is so vital to the healthy life of the church that I don't want to miss those out in order to do detailed work on verses 11 to 15. Does that make sense? Well, I hope it does because that's what's happening. (laughs) So then, let's turn our minds to verse 1 of chapter 2. I hope you've got it open in front of you. It will help if you have. I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. I'm not sure the strangeness of those verses hits home immediately. Uh, And uh, you might well think, well, actually, 1 Timothy chapter 2 seems like a really appropriate uh, chapter to be looking at the day after the coronation. This is the chapter. These are the verses that command us to pray for kings and rulers in authority. And uh, on first sight... Uh, it looks as though this is just a matter of uh, doing our duty and, and praying for our government uh, in the hope that we'll have good government, uh, we'll be able to live quietly uh, and, uh, and get on with being Christians unmolested. However, I don't think that's what it's about at all. Uh, and I don't think, if you were with us the, for the last couple of weeks, uh, I don't think that's exactly what you'd expect here, is it? So just to remind you uh, or to introduce you to this idea, if uh, you've not been here before, uh, look back with me to chapter 1, verse 3. Uh, Paul is writing to Timothy, uh, and he's on a mission. Chapter, three verse, chapter 1, verse 3. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may com- command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Paul is writing a letter to Timothy to a church that is in complete crisis. It's a total mess. It's melting down. There's false teaching and false living to the extent that he has to suggest to Timothy that uh, perhaps it's not appropriate to be making people leaders of the church when they're drunken, violent adulterers because that's the bunch they've got in at the moment. Okay, The place is a disaster area. And Paul says to Timothy, I've urged you, stay there and deal with it. You need to teach the false teachers. You need to stop them. You need to tell them to stop. So having then introduced the letter in the rest of chapter one, Paul gets down to business, beginning of chapter two. I urge then, using exactly the same phrase as he used in verse three, I urge then. First of all, this is the thing of first priority. This is the first thing, Timothy, that you are to do in order to straighten out the life of this church that is falling apart. Pray for everyone. Pray for the king. Pray for rulers. Pray for those in authority. Does the strangeness of that begin to to hit home? How is that going to solve the problems of the church in Ephesus? Praying for the king. 
Why is that so vital? Before telling us to pray for the king, very last uh, phrase of verse one, you see something interesting. There are these four different ways of talking about prayer. It's making sure that, that, there's, that there's kind of complete uh, prayer, that there's nothing left out for all people, says Paul. And if you look uh, down, uh, you'll notice that he uses exactly the same phrase again at the beginning of verse four, uh, talking about how God wants all people to be saved. Uh, and then again, he uses the same phrase in verse six about Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. So this command to preach goes deeper, to, this command to pray rather goes deeper uh, than just making sure that in the intercessions on a Sunday morning you pray for the government because that's a good thing to do. It goes much deeper. It goes to the heart of the gospel. Uh, and notice the first reason Paul gives for praying like this. Why do you pray for kings and all in authority? That we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Now, if you just start with that first word, peaceful, then probably what you think is, yes, good government uh, gets rid of uh, crime and disorder and, and it allows us to live peaceful and quiet lives. But if you know anything about the church in Ephesus that Timothy uh, is being sent to, you know that peace and quiet are not on the agenda. Notice what the false teaching does in chapter one. To command them not to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. The false teaching causes conflict. It is not a peaceful church. In fact, look down at verse eight. Having said what he says about uh, the, the, the prayer meeting in verses 1 to 7, he then goes back to the prayer meeting and says, verse 8, Therefore I want men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. The church is unquiet, but not because things outside it are difficult, but because things inside it are wrong and disordered. There is friction. There is anger. And actually, uh, as we'll see in verse 8, I think that thing of lifting up holy hands in prayer is actually about the problem of violence in the church. This is not a peaceful, quiet church. Uh, and notice Paul goes on to say, uh, living our lives in all godliness and holiness. This is about the church living right in the world, not about the world accommodating the church. And in fact, if you uh, flick on with me to chapter 3 of 2 Timothy, the, the follow-up letter in verse 12, this is what he says about people who want to live a godly life. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Paul is under no illusion that the church is going to have a quiet time if it tries to be godly. In fact, they will be persecuted. So sorting out the prayer meeting, praying for everyone, even for kings and those in authority, somehow is connected in the life of the church to the church being at peace with itself, to the church living in a godly and holy way in the surrounding culture which actually won't bring them peace and quiet, will bring persecution. 
Which brings us on to who the king he's probably got in mind is. Because as Paul is writing this, there is an emperor in Rome whose name almost all of us will have heard before. Nero. Nero, who, amongst other entertainments, used to enjoy lighting, uh, that is, uh, you know, providing the lighting for his backyard barbecues by dipping Christians in pitch and setting them on fire. Nero instigated a huge persecution of Christians in Rome. He's notorious for it. And Paul says, you know what your problem is? You're not praying for Nero. Why? Why would praying for a king like Nero be at the heart of solving the problems of the church? I think what Paul's doing, it's a little bit like something I came across in in this book. It's by a chap called James Kerr. It's called Legacy, What the All Blacks Can Teach Us About the Business of Life. It's a fascinating book given to me by a friend in uh, sports administration. He's worked with the RFU and uh, and various other bodies. Uh, And he gave me this book. He said, you've got to read this. It's dynamite. And it is, it's a good book. I'm I'm not trying to sell it, don't go out and buy it, really, you don't need to. But if you want to borrow my copy, you're more than welcome. But there's a a fascinating kind of story through the book about how the All Blacks were in crisis. Uh, And actually, this invincible rugby team uh, was beginning to lose its edge uh, and was actually beginning to fall apart at the seams. uh, And they were in danger of, of, of complete meltdown. Uh, And basically, the the coach and the senior players got together and decided that the the, the key to sorting it all out was was changing the culture of the team and focusing on character. Uh, And so uh, this is uh, just a short passage from the book. While the country is still watching replays and school kids lie in bed dreaming of all-black glory, the all-blacks themselves are tidying up after themselves. Sweeping the sheds, doing it properly, so no one else has to. Because no one looks after the All Blacks, the All Blacks look after themselves. Andrew Mertens, the record-breaking fly-half for uh, the All Blacks, said this about it. "It's, It's not expecting someone else to do your job for you. It teaches you not to expect things to be handed to you. The All Blacks are legends. They're celebrities in New Zealand. Uh, And what the coach and the senior players recognised was that at the heart of being an all-black had to be getting away from that kind of celebrity mentality and becoming a team player, which means learning humility. So after the game, regardless of rank, two of the players pick up brooms and they sweep the changing room and they leave it clean because they are not above that. They're not super beings. They're not super important. They're part of the team. And when they stop being a part of the team, there's the door. That's the culture that made the All Blacks great again when they were falling apart. They had to learn humility. They had to learn their place 
within New Zealand rugby. And I think what Paul is doing is something similar. It's not uh, sort of saying you need to do something menial in order to learn a lesson, which I suppose, you know, in, in the sort of most brutal way is what the All Blacks are being told. You, you, you need to come down a peg or two. But it's not, it's not totally dissimilar. It's taking an action and saying, if you really embody this action in your life and in the life of the church, which is the household of God, you will see the culture change. But what is that action? That praying for kings and all people and those in authority, why is it that that transforms the culture? Why is it that that makes the church a place where godliness and holiness have their place again, rather than anger and disputing? Well, let's see what Paul says. Verse 3. Why is this a good thing to do? Well, first of all, it pleases God, our Savior. And that's the key thing. It pleases God that you pray for your enemies and those who persecute you. What Jesus told his disciples to do, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Paul says you need to love your enemies, you need to pray for those who persecute you. Why? Well, that pleases God. Why does it please God? Well, verse four, he wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Say verse one, pray for all people. Why? Because God wants all people to be saved. Who is God? He is our savior. He wants to be other people's savior too. You see, the church in Ephesus was incredibly inward looking. It was full of people striving to climb higher on the spiritual ladder, to get higher in the hierarchy, to to be better than others. People who felt sort of entitled uh, and as though uh, they had their standing with God because of well, who they were and what they did and, and their position in the community and their wealth and, uh, and their good deeds. And Paul says, you need to remember that like me, you are sinners saved by grace. And what God loves is to save people like you and actually to save people like Nero because there's not half as much difference as you think. Praying for your enemies and those who persecute you is a great way of remembering that you come to God as people who need saving, not as people who have something to offer. It pleases God our Savior when we pray for others to be saved as he has saved us because he wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. So on the one hand, the church that is exclusivist, the church that sort of says, look, here we are and no one else can join, we're the special people, the church that looks in and thinks, aren't we great, is in serious danger of becoming a hive of the worst kind of ungodliness and unholiness. But actually by extension, so is the church that says we're so inclusive, just come as you are and stay as you are, Because what God wants is actually for people to come to him to know the truth, to find salvation. 
Something that makes a fundamental difference in their lives in the way that Paul, having been a blasphemer and a violent man, becomes a minister and a herald of the gospel. A servant of the Jesus he once persecuted. It's about radical transformation. And you see, the, the weird thing is that the exclusivist church and the inclusivist church, they both play down the reality of sin, the reality of our, our, our rebellion against God, the, the reality that we need saving. It's funny, isn't it? How something as simple as who you pray for not only reflects but shapes how you think about yourself. Paul says, if there are people out there that you think are too bad to pray for, you're in serious trouble. It pleases God our Savior that we pray for all people, that we pray for their salvation, for God to bless them, because he wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Why, verse five, well, there is only one God. He's not our pet. He is the God of all people. If people don't come to him for salvation, they will not have salvation. That's the point. There is only one God, and there is only one mediator between God and mankind. The man, Jesus Christ, we can't really see it in English, but he's playing on words because the word that we're translating is all people or mankind. It's the same word. It's anthropos in Greek, which can include women. And it is an inclusive word, and that's why Paul's using it. But the word that he uses for Jesus there is anthropos, man. So all, just forgive me the, the, the exclusive language for a moment, all men, all men, all men, all men, the man who gave himself for all men. It's right that it's translated people uh, for us because it, it does mean men and women, boys and girls, but uh, the Greek language and the English language work slightly differently and it, it just helps to, to see that, that for all human beings there is one human being who came to be a mediator, that is to, to stand between God and rebellious humanity and bring them back together. There is only one mediator. If you don't pray for people to come to him and receive salvation, they will not receive salvation, and God wants them to. There is no other way. And that man, Christ Jesus, verse 6, gave himself as a ransom for all people. He died one death for everyone. The point is, if we don't yearn for the salvation of the world, if we don't yearn for the salvation of the people who most hate us, we don't really have the heart of God. We're not really serving his purposes. We're not really the church he died to build. I mean, just look at what Paul's done. He's talked about what God wants. He's talked about who God is. And he's talked about what God has done. And if, if we, as a church, don't yearn for a lost world to find salvation in Jesus, then we're at odds with God's purposes for his world. 
we've lost sight of God's identity and we've lost sight of what God has done for our salvation, which is Jesus coming and giving up his own life for us. In other words, we've lost the gospel. We've lost Jesus and we're going against what God wants. So says Paul, pray and pray earnestly for everyone, even those who persecute you, that they might find the same kind of mercy that I, Paul, he says, that I have found. He talked about how he was appointed in, in, in chapter one, despite his, his violent and, and, and even criminal past in the way that he's treated God's people. But he comes back to his appointment as a herald and apostle. And he says, I'm, I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying. I was made an apostle and a faithful teacher to the Gentiles, to those on the outside. As a faithful and observant Jew, God has called him to go to the very people that he thought were always outside God's purposes and always the enemies of God's people, the Greeks, the Gentiles. And so Paul says, if my ministry means anything to you, my very existence speaks of this, that what God wants, that who God is, and that what God has done all point to the need for all to come to Jesus. And that's searching, isn't it? That is searching of a church culture. The words come up on the screen and we can say them easily enough. But do I really live? Do I really pray as though this is a lost world and there is one God who desires that everyone should be saved and who sent his son who gave himself up as a ransom that is to pay the price for the freedom of those people? Is that the thing that drives me as a person? Is that the thing that drives us as a church? If our focus is too inward, we're in danger of losing everything. So Paul says, make sure you make it a practice to pray for the people who most hate you And pray that God would show them mercy, just as he's shown you mercy. And if you do make that a practice, what you'll find is you become more and more aware of the generosity that God has shown to you. Of the need at the heart of your own life and your own self for that mercy. That, I think, is what is going on in verses 1 to 7 of 1 Timothy chapter two. So in the coming months, we're going to be thinking about strategy and about what kind of church we wanna be. This has got to be at the heart of it, hasn't it? A desire to reach out to a lost world. Getting on board with God's desire that all should be saved. It's funny how looking outward can help to fix what's on the inside. 
And so, much more briefly, uh, what then does he have to say about uh, the prayer meetings and how they're conducted? Well, the standards he sets seem fairly low, don't they? But they go right to the heart. So therefore, I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. Now, this isn't saying that, that, that men should pray and women should not. Paul's very clear in, in his other letters that women pray in the, in the public assembly. Uh, but the point is that the men, when they pray, it, it, it seems as though it's been descending into, even into violence. So um, the, the, the standard way of prayer in, in the Jewish synagogue was to stand with your hands uplifted to heaven, your palms up. But the idea of having clean hands... The thing that makes your hands dirty is shedding blood. And that kind of carries on as an idiom today to some extent, doesn't it? You know, you talk about people getting their hands dirty. That often refers to to doing something wrong. To getting involved in the enterprise in such a way that you're no longer innocent of whatever it is that's happening. And Paul says, I want you to pray with holy hands without anger or disputing. Now that comes about when people know themselves to be in God's family by grace, not climbing over each other to reach the top of the spiritual pyramid of the church hierarchy. Uh, And I think that's the same sort of thing that's going on in what he says about uh, women who are showing up to the prayer meeting as if it was the Met Gala. That's basically the point he's making. These expensive hairstyles were the the kind of great social display of the time. Uh, Non-Christian writers like Juvenal uh, write about uh, how expensive these hairstyles, these highly braided hairstyles woven with golden pearls really were. 17 years wages for a normal person. And, and again, the, the, the sort of non-Christian writers of the period uh, refer to how this kind of high adornment uh, was a display both of wealth and of um, sexual promiscuity. It spoke of a looseness of morals. It was inviting. And Paul is saying... There are people coming to church as though what they looked like on the outside was what mattered about them. And they're trying to show you something about themselves and why you should be impressed about them by how they're dressing. Both are just what he says about the men and what he says about the women are really about people seeking power, status, and prestige for themselves. And Paul says, what should really adorn a person? That is what should really characterize you. What should your life look like? Well, he says, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds. Appropriate for women who profess to worship God. Worshiping God, praying to God, require that we become the sorts of people that God wants us to be, that God made us to be which means holiness, which means godliness. What that means, we'll talk about more as we go through the book. But it's living lives characterized by people who know themselves to belong to another. 
who have come to know God's great forgiveness, but see that not as a license just to do what they want, but as a freedom to live for him, to live his way in his world. See, so I, th- I think the way that verses uh, 8 to 10 follow on from 1 to 7 is he says, look, put this at the heart of your prayer meetings so that you'll be peaceful and quiet. And, and look, you'll see what I mean when you look at your prayer meetings. I, I, I want the violence gone. I want the social display and the, and, and, and the sort of who wore it best gone. This is a place of worship and of service of God and of each other. Remember what he says uh, back in chapter one, verse five. Stop the false teachers teaching falsely. Wife, verse five of chapter one. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. That's the heart of the Christian life. Lives transformed from the inside out. And Paul says, if you're obsessed with what's on the outside, but don't take care of what's on the inside, it's all going to go terribly wrong. So... When it comes to the subject of your prayers, look out, don't just look in. But when it comes to yourself, don't focus on what others see, focus on what's on on the inside. Does that make sense? So the church should look outwards, not just inwards. And the individual should look inwards, not just outwards. It's not just what others see. It's who I am before God as a person who has been saved by his grace. If that becomes the culture of my life and of your life, of our church, it'll be dynamite, won't it? 